You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. You're listening to special programming brought to you by itswhereiam.com. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Good morning, Las Vegas. It's Zandra Pollard. It's where I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in on wonderful 91.5 Jazz and More. Today, we're talking about a very serious topic, and that is domestic violence. It is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we want to make sure that we are sharing information that can be helpful to those who need it. And we are welcoming back Louisa Eiler. She's a psychotherapist and is very familiar with domestic violence. And she has um, a personal testimony I believe she'd like to share. And then we'll go on to give some information on how to get help out here in Nevada. Welcome, thank Louisa. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yes, thank you for having me. Once again, I love having you on the show. You're great. You know so much about so many things. Yeah, and I think that self-disclosure is something that as women, we have to learn how to deal with because, you know, there's sometimes the situation where people overshare mm-hmm. and then there's other times being very delicate and knowing when telling your story and sharing your story might be that inspiration that can help someone else. Absolutely. And, you know, I like to say there's a, there's a point in a woman's life when you go from surviving to thriving and, and that, that time in your life when you can at a future time, look back and see how far you've come. You know, that's the reason I share my story now in hopes that someone listening, you know, will, know that in their situation, they're the expert. No one can tell them when it's the right time to leave or when it's the right time to take the next steps. But just to share my own experience and how it not only shaped my life, but then it's allowed me to give back in other ways and really defined my career um, in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yes, yes. So Louisa, just a little backstory. Uh, Louisa was on last week. If you missed the show, you can find it on itswhereiam.com or any major podcast platform. So on the show last week, you shared um, a domestic, you kind of touched on domestic violence a little bit. And so I asked you to come back on because of the Awareness Month and also because you did have a personal testimony. Would you like to share a piece of that with us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, my son was two months old. He was a newborn and I was only 25 years old and I was living in South Carolina. And I say that because my 
the majority of my family was in Pennsylvania. So I was many hours from people who were very close to me. And so there I was with a two month old baby. My son was born on November 1st and uh, it was the night before Super Bowl Sunday. We were supposed to have a big party the next day. And through a series of events, um, my son's father, you know, didn't come home. And then I found out he was with other women and he came home and he was drunk. And, you know, uh, he started in on me about, you know, why am I waiting up and why am I not taking care of the baby? And one thing led to another. And in the heat of our argument, I must have said a word that triggered him. And he snapped and kind of went into this whole different beast modality and, you know, began beating me until I was, you know, cowered in a corner with a fractured cheekbone. The police had to be called. The ambulance had to be called. And there I was with this newborn baby, you know, two months old and figuring out, geez, what am I going to do? So, you know, I had to call people who weren't necessarily very close friends or they were just basically people I knew from my business world. And in fact, the the family that watched my little two month old baby while I sought medical attention and went to the hospital, um, they were actually the people who owned a mailboxes, et cetera, location. You know, I had to call early on a Sunday uh-huh. morning and say, um, I need some help. I know you have a good family and I know you have children of your own. And could you watch my son for, you know, I don't know how long until I get released from the oh, hospital wow. because what would have happened, because what was really scary in that time is that, you know, had I not had one person to call, my mm-hmm. son would have went into like, the custody system, you know, they would have had to get temporary foster care and emergency care and things like that. So it was really important, you know, to kind of, kind of be able to have the courage to reach out because at first I didn't want to tell anyone. Right. You know, and then you're going through the whole hospital day and you're telling the story, you have to tell your story over and over again. And then Mm -hmm. even when you leave the hospital, you still then have to do these police reports and all of these other things. And what was interesting about my particular case was that the severity of my injuries were so great that the police actually pressed the charges for me. Like I, it was okay. no longer up to me whether charges needed to be filed mm-hmm. um, because they, they labeled it as criminal domestic violence of a high and aggravated nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from there, you know, I took the steps to, um, you know, gather my belongings, hire a moving truck, and I had the resources to do that. And then I moved into a separate apartment and, you know, had to go through a series of things, but from the time the incident happened until I could get an apartment, you know, I had a window of time where I I had to figure out where I was going to stay. And while I could have stayed with the family that was watching my son, Mm -hmm. my face was so black and blue. I felt like it was traumatic for the children, the other children to see it. Lots of people were asking questions. And in fact, a couple days later, um, immediately that night, then I, I used the victim's advocate resources from the local police department and they were able to get me a room in a women and family shelter. Mm-hmm. And so there I was, my son and me in this, in this women's shelter. But what was really good about the women's shelter is there, I, I met these women who, some of them were so in dire straits or impoverished condition, you know, in, impoverished conditions that they didn't even have a quarter make a call on a payphone. Now keep in mind I'm in my I'm in my late forties and so, you know, twenty eight years ago, like, you know, the world was a different place in terms of accessibility to cell phones and like how much that costs and things like that. And just seeing, you know, how broken some of these women were, you know, that didn't have, you know, the resources to move their belongings out and then learning that there was this whole other world out there of advocacy and support groups and shelters that if you're 
brave enough to get curious about what might be out there to help you, you can start Googling things and calling the victim's advocacy from your non-emergent numbers at police departments and calling the 800 numbers. And you'd be really surprised what you can find out because there are services out there. And even though some places are full, you have to keep looking. And, and in my story, what was beautiful about it is when I was in that women's shelter, we had to go to these classes and, you know, the healing things and parenting classes and things like that to make sure that we were okay. And the one woman, when she was teaching the class, I was just like, you know, I raised my hand. I'm like, what's your title? What's your career? Like, what do you do? And she was like, well, I'm a social worker. And from that moment forward, I devoted my life to becoming a social worker, to calling my old professors, to getting into grad school. And my one professor, I had my, one of my older professors, I had such a good relationship with her um, back when I was a student. I called and told her my situation and she's like, let me make a few calls. And apparently in her life, a number of years ago, she had been a victim of domestic violence and she knew that if I could get a graduate assistant job at the university in the office for sexual health and violence prevention, it would help me work through my own trauma because I would be immediately helping others and I would move from that victim mentality to, Hey, like you can do this. And so I ended up, getting into grad school on a late admission because I had a decent GPA in my undergrad and I got an internship and a graduate paid position at this office for sexual health and violence prevention where I became the share peer coordinator. And then I helped respond to incidents of intermittent partner violence on the university of South Carolina campus, which is a very big school. And so, you know, then me being in my mid twenties, being able to help young first-time college students ages 18, you know, and up to deal with living away from their parents for the first time and, and really being able to deliver this, you know, educational program to these 30-some thousand students over the next two years of my graduate program, it gave me such an immersion into the depth of violence and despair and upbringings that other people had that were different from mine. Mm-hmm. And, no, it, and it, it just, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, it gave me this lens, this different lens to see the world. You know, many people always ask me, gosh, Lisa, like for your age and for the life that you've lived, how have you experienced so many things in those years at the university when I was mm-hmm. meeting, you know, 15, you know, 15 women a day, interviewing them, seeing what's happening in their life. And then that over a 10, 10 plus year, you know, social work career, um, that exposure really helps you understand the full depth of things that people experience and it's not only women it's men too and let's just get the facts straight i mean the national statistics and i'm speaking for the u.s here and other parts of the world it's a little bit different and my heart goes out to all of the 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 things that are happening you know overseas right now but the, the the national statistics for the u.s are one in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I noticed a like a trend. There was a uh, representative here a few months ago from Safe Nest, which is the largest domestic violence agency in Nevada, and we were discussing like some of the common trends, which is, you know, usually you're not around your family, right? You are secluded from them, and it's just you and the partner, because then you don't have that support. Then there's the financial piece, right? Usually women or men or whoever is um, dealing with the domestic violence, 
they're not working or they're not making very much to be able to take care of themselves. And so they feel like sometimes they need to stay because what are they going to do if they leave? Right. So one of the great things about Safe Nest out here is that they help um, they help support people by not only giving them shelter, but also training them in the workforce. And, you know, they have uh, resources to help people get, you know, jobs and things like that. They also help protect children and their pets. So I thought that was interesting. You know, they take on the pets, too, because they're family. And uh, so I just really wanted to make sure that during this month, I gave a huge shout out to Safe Nest and to let everyone in the Nevada area, in the state of Nevada, know that Safe Nest is a wonderful resource for you. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Groups like that are invaluable because they have the direct connects by by zip code and by region, and they can help you navigate to the places that are closest to you. Yes. While the national numbers are also great, and they will get you there, having those local, you know, uh, home-based programs that are organizations that know people in the community and can help get you connected to peers and mentors and rides and cell phones. And if you needed to get infiltrated into the areas that can even help you change your name if you need that level of safety mm-hmm. all of that yes. stuff is a possibility yes because the whole point is to protect and empower right absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely a lot of people ask me as a therapist you know like what are things that you can do if you know someone who has experienced domestic violence because everybody wants to help and everybody thinks that they know what's best for someone else yes absolutely you know, what you have to keep in mind is that person knows what's best for themselves. And what you don't want to do right. is put yourself also in the danger of someone who has a very abusive or violent or dangerous partner. Because, right. you know, we see this all the time where one woman or one person tries to help another individual and then both persons end up injured or hurt or, or worse. Yes. You know, and that's something that you really have to consider, you know, number one thing to do always in any domestic violence or intimate partner violence situation is to take the situation seriously and really prioritize safety. You know, that immediate concern is the safety of the victim. You know, so always, you know, if there's an immediate danger, you know, 911 is the, is the best, best thing to do. I mean, police are trained for that. Um, and the second thing is, it's really important to have some, somebody you can trust in your corner. You know, for some people, that's their barber or their hairdresser or their nail technician. You know, you know, find somebody you can trust that you have access to. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times phone calls are monitored or, you know, people put tracking devices on people in, 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 in some of these very severe cases. So, it's, you know, start to think about, you know, who you can trust. And, you know, if you're in a situation, what you really want to try to do is be building this support system that's kind of discreet so that when you decide it's your time to leave, you have those people in place that you trust that you know your next step. You don't have to know, you don't have to know what you're going to do the next five years of your life and how you're going to turn your life around and what's going to happen even five days from now. But when it's that time that you decide that you know it's ready to leave and that it's the time for you to make your move, you've got to have those people in place. Because that that makes you empowered to know, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm ready now. You know, let me give um, some contact information for those who are listening. So 
If you need to speak to someone or you're worried about someone that you know and you want to seek professional advice on what is maybe the next step, SafeNest, they have a 24-hour hotline, seven days a week, and the number is 1-800-799-SAFE. And that's 1-800-799-7233. Also, they have a live chat, and you can also text START to 88788. Also, their website is safenest.org. Okay? So they'll be able to help you out with anything. If you feel that there's a question you need answered or you're worried about your closest girlfriend or or a relative, they'll be able to direct you the best way possible. Absolutely. So important. And, you know, for, for someone who might be listening who, who says, you know, I'm not ready to make a move yet, like I, I know, but I don't have anyone I can trust. And, you know, is there anything else that I can do while I'm in this situation trying to figure out how to help myself? You know, I would say that one thing you can do is figure out a way to document the incidents that's happened to you. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that in this power and control wheel that the, the abusers do is they try to make you feel like you're going crazy or that you're imagining things. Or that oh, did my it, God. Gaslighting, really gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. So you want to figure out how to keep a record of any abusive incidents. It, okay. it, it could be your your own little way of doing it. It could be like on a note. It could be, you know, something just some way that you know that this did happen because mm-hmm. the, the, the body, the body will remember, but the mind might forget or the mind might get convoluted. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you'll get to a place, you know, sometimes when you leave the situation and then life gets a little tough and then you think about going back. And then sometimes all it takes is you to look at that record, that journal that you kept or that, that incident log for your own well being that you kept. And it's that reminder of you didn't imagine it. It was real. And these are all the reasons that you need to keep moving forward in whatever's going to be next in your life. Well, you know, I brought up gaslighting. <laughs> that really stuck out for me because I did not realize that was a form of emotional abuse. And rarely do mm-hmm. we talk about that. So, yeah, gas- as you were gaslighting saying, is- go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just saying gaslighting, you know, it's really psychological manipulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you kind of touched and, on that. And so, yeah, that's why I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because what happens with gaslighting is often in close relationships, you know, one person seeks to make another person start to doubt their own perception, their memory or reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term gaslight actually comes from, I think, I forget what year it was, a 1940s film where there was a husband who was manipulating his wife into believing she was going insane. Um, and actually, um, in this, in the original movie, he was dimming the real gaslights in their home and then denying it when she questioned it. But oh. if you look at that new Julia Roberts movie, uh, or that I think it's on Netflix. There's, there's a new something out with Julia Roberts related to gaslighting. And, you know, it really, it, it shows how she had to start documenting things because, you know, he was using the entire system to start to discredit everything that she was saying, you know, because gaslighting tactics are denying or trivializing, you know, making someone think that they're making a big deal out of nothing. Right. And then also contradiction. Another, 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 um, 
tactic of gaslighting is withholding information, you know, keeping secrets or causing the victim to feel less in the darkness or like feeling anxious because they don't know what's next. Oh, okay. uh, another one is projection. Maybe someone projects their own negative qualities onto the victim. You know, so if someone's a bully, mm-hmm. they want the victim to feel that they're also a bully or they want the victim to make themselves feel guilty or that the victim is the one responsible for all the problems in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, trivializing feeling, you know, making a person feel that nothing that they feel is valuable or like their feelings have no meaning or accusing someone for being overly sensitive. And then again, that isolation of the victim, you know, gaslighters always in most circumstances, I guess I shouldn't say always, but they try to isolate people from, from their friends or family only to serve their own need for control and dependency. Right. Wow. So much. And then what do you think about um, the abusers? What if they don't know that they're abusing? Like, how do they find out they're abusing? You know? Well, a lot of it is learned behavior. I mean, you dive deep into it. Sometimes they really aren't aware of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but they are responsible for their action. You know, not being aware of something doesn't mitigate the responsibility. And so, you know, it really, it comes from this need to understand where their own impulses and emotions get fed from. And sometimes it's anger and then sometimes diving deeper, it's fear. Um, And sometimes it's, it's having that need to have that dominance. It's always that need for power and control. And so it isn't until someone really has a positive experience with fairness and equity that they understand that there can be shared power and there can be balance in a relationship and you can be kind and still be a leader. You can be kind Mm -hmm. and still, you know, exercise good judgment or learn negotiation tactics that don't involve you hurting others to feel more empowered about yourself. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of therapy and a a lot of group counseling. One of the things that they found for this anger management, especially if it's male driven or male dominated violence is group therapy in combination with individual therapy often works at a higher degree because when you have to face other men and be accountable in the presence of other males, um, it just makes you look at yourself differently because it's that self-esteem and that self-confidence because you want people to think of you a certain way. You know, I wonder if they have, um, and maybe you can answer this, do they have court-mandated abuse groups? Like, not for the victim, but for the abuser. Yes. Okay. Depending on the nature of the crime and um, what jurisdiction you're in and um, how severe it is, like if you were charged and faced jail time, a lot of times um, these court-mandated anger management programs are often a part of the sentencing and a part of the legal system ordered by a judge as part of a probation or part of um a recovery program for somebody who might have been involved in a crime where anger or aggressive behavior played a role. You know, and usually the goal of these programs is really to help people manage their anger, improve emotional regulation. And really, here's the kicker. The real reason for this is they're trying in the system to reduce the likelihood of a future incident. Wow. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for providing all of this information, for giving us your personal testimony as well. And um, while it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, y'all, seek the help that you need. Right. And before you try to give someone a whole bunch of knowledge, get yourself informed. You know, if, if you find that you think someone is in a situation, learn to know the signs, seek information on your own before you start judging someone's life. Be very patient, and it's crucial to be supportive and non-judgmental when helping someone who's experienced domestic violence. Remember, the way they would solve their problem might not be the way you would solve it, because otherwise, if you don't allow someone in a situation to kind of help sort out their own you know, escape plan, so to speak, they may feel shame, fear, or guilt for not listening to, again, what you wanted them to do. Um, you know, so just right. keep yourself informed as a friend and as an advocate. Learn about it. Learn about the dynamics and try to learn available resources so that you can better support the victim. And when all else fails, just encourage self-care, encourage the person who might be experiencing any type of violence to prioritize their self and, and really just start to consider their own physical and emotional well-being. Great advice. Thank you, Louisa Eiler, once again for coming on to the show. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to 91.5 Jazz and More. This is Zandra Pollard. It's where I am. You know, my social media handles are It's Where I Am LV. Also, my website is It's Where I Am.com. And I'll be here next week. I'm here every Saturday at 7 30 a.m. Next week, we will be talking about breast cancer awareness. So, hope you tune in and have a great day. Thank you.